This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, welcome, 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 welcome back to Fans on the Run, the Beatles podcast which has eliminated the need for all other Beatles podcasts. There's nowhere to go but down from here, he said knowingly. So... Uh, as we record this right now, uh, we're we're in a very interesting time. Interesting time. I I was gonna make some sort of like grandiose uh, statement about how we should keep sane and like stay together, but this is not the show you go to hear that because I don't know how to speak. My friends call me borderline illiterate, so, uh, you know. Go read a book. I don't know. Anyways, enough of my... It's. I feel like I have to meet a quota every episode. There has to be at least 45 seconds of uh, delusional rambling at the start of the show before he actually makes any progress of some sort. But I digress. We have a fantastic guest for you today. And as a musician and a... As, as a, a general tech nerd, musician tech, learning about all the gear, I, I am really, really excited to delve into this. He's a musician, producer, arranger, and audio wizard of both the analog and digital domain. He's the author of the Beatles recording reference manuals, of which there were four. Volume 1 is My Bonnie through Beatles for Sale, Volume 2 is Help through Revolver, Volume 3 is Pepper through Magical Mystery Tour, and Volume 4 is the White Album through Yellow Submarine. There were but four volumes. However, a new day has dawned, and the saga has finally come to a close with the final volume. Volume number 5, which covers Let It Be, or the Get Back Sessions, through Abbey Road. Please give a very, very, very warm Fans on the Run welcome to Jerry Hammock. Welcome to the show! Oh, thank you, Ethan. It's great to be here with you. I really appreciate that. Uh, see, this is one of the uh, the benefits of doing an audio-only podcast, but while also having the video on. Because <laughs> I could see during my, uh, my monologue there. I'm were, enjoying it. Yeah. I was enjoying it thoroughly. Yeah. I have an audience. I, you, I work you well do. with an audience. You do. So, Jerry, how have you been holding up? I've been holding up well. Uh, getting volume five ready to go out the door uh, is it, time-consuming and mind-consuming, and, and uh, it's coming together. It's uh, in the very final stages, and hopefully within a couple of weeks, it'll start to uh, be available to get into people's, people's hands. So uh, that's always a, a, an exciting time when you're in the publishing cycle. Actually, do you have a release date? I'm looking at the second week of November. 2020 yeah okay so just a couple weeks away from from our date today by the time this episode goes out the book is already available to buy you can go to well we'll yeah let's 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 future trip the book's out there pick it up today yeah well we'll we'll do all the extensive plugging at the end (laughs) I, i i give my guests free reign to plug whatever the fuck they want gotcha yeah, I I did say the fuck word because this is a this is a forward thinking podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, 
yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna censor you, so no worries no. about that. I'm the one who edits it, so <laughs> who's gonna <laughs> censor go. me? Who's there gonna censor go. me? There you go. So uh, I, I was about to ask a stupid question. I was gonna say, How how's the weather in Toronto? And then I realized Ethan, you could look out your window and see pretty much the same thing. It's so it's so true. Uh, nice to nice to be doing a, one of these with a Canadian. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, as we were talking before the the broadcast started, it's uh, it's rare to have a, a Canadian to Canadian discussion about these things unless you've got uh, Piers Hemmingson in the mix. Yeah. See episode five with Piers Hemmingson for more. <laughs> Hi, Piers. Uh, but you know what? It's I. Uh, I feel like I'm now. I. I feel like I've ascended to a place as one of the token Canadians in this Beatle world. Absolutely, and, and and welcome to it. Yeah, I am very. I'm very happy with my position. <laughs> so. For those who don't know, I'm going to shake up the format a little here. Holy, what the... Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Why don't you tell people, if in case they've been living under a rock or are just stupid, uh, what the Beatles recording reference manuals are? Sure, it's a multi-book series. Uh, there's, again, there will be five volumes by the time this is out. And it covers their entire catalog of, of released and recorded music. Uh, so... Uh, so everything from my Bonnie out through the out through the Abbey Road sessions at the end of their career, it takes you on uh, it, it takes you through the recording of their of their music from first take to final remix is sort of the the easiest way to to think about it. So when they go in to record the songs and they start with a backing track and then they'll do overdubs to build the song, I walk you through every step of the way to tell you how each song came together and, and the decisions that they were making along the way to, to bring the songs together. And as a reference manual, then it also includes uh, information on every day in the studio, who was there, what the instruments were, what they were who was playing what, uh, what studio gear was in in play for it, and then what was accomplished in terms of recording or mixing. Uh, beyond that, uh, as a as a reference manual, I went deep over ten years of research in, into these in, into this matter and the, the, the subject. And uh, where there is a conflict in the historic record about what exactly happened in the session, I bring that I bring that out and. Uh, and as best possible, help to settle issues where there is a disagreement between other Beatle uh, other Beatle authorities on what happened in the session and what got done and how how the songs came forward. Uh, these are not storybooks. They're not books that try to you know tell you uh, what was going on in John's head when he was on acid during the Pepper period and went up on the roof in the middle of a recording session. That's not what I'm what I'm interested in or what the books cover. I leave that to better authors than myself. It really is a reference man to help you understand how their songs were recorded, how their entire canon of music was recorded. So to kick things off, I have a really nerdy question, a very specific question. Mm -hmm. so, I hope I have a specific answer for you. Yeah. Well I, I think you might. So I Oh, I'll kind of spoil it. My favorite Beatles album is Revolver, and my mm -hmm. favorite Beatle guitar tone is all over Revolver. 
with uh, like Taxman, Andrew Bird can sing, you know what I mean? That kind of mm-hmm. slightly, but I've never been able to recreate that sound. Well, with what were with, they doing? Well, they were still in their, they were still using, and for the majority of their career, actually, they used the Vox amplifiers, like mm-hmm. the AC AC thirty amplifiers, was what they were what they were using. Yeah. The, the the guitar the guitar of choice primarily was a semi for for the solo work so taxman is mccartney playing the solo and he was he's playing the the, casino right yeah the epiphone casino a semi hollow body electric guitar uh so there's not a whole lot more to it than that you know you're overdriving an amplifier over overdrive driving a, a a twin 12 amplifier is is essentially what it is they were recording. They were recording their amplifier cabinets either with the uh, Neumann U48 uh, microphones or with the Neumann KM56 microphones. Uh, you know, but there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of magic to that. It's it's simply you know a guitar. Uh, it's a guitar amp combination, and then you know, like any guitar player does, you play with you know you play with the tone knob, right? Uh, the red consoles that they were working with had very limited ability for sculpting of the equalization profiles of any signal going into them. So they essentially had what you might think of on your home stereo as a treble and a bass control. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not a whole lot else, although the Beatles had access to other tools like the, what was called a, a curve bender EQ, the RS-56. Um, so the, the key to those tones is is a slightly overdriven Vox amplifier and a semi-hollow body guitar. That's it. Because I, I had seen some conflict on the on the nerd forums about like it's the, they've settled that it's a Vox, but they none of them can decide whether it's a an AC30 or one of them uh, solid state ones. The UL730, I think it's called. The ULs weren't in the 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 UL uh, the UL four thirty and seven thirty weren't really in play quite yet, and those were experimental models. Uh, so those weren't those weren't in play yet, and uh, but demonstrably they were using the AC thirties on a on a consistent basis, um, where. Uh, they did have, an, and the the exact numbers are escaping me. I want to say it's like a, a seventy one thirty, which was another model that was kind of in play in that in that era, and that's you know, certainly a possibility. And I'll tell you from the way that I handle these questions in the in the books is, if it's absolutely known, we have photographic evidence of that session. And you know the session that let's you know let's say we're talking about the taxman session for the solo, or Andrew Birkinson for the you know for the for the work there, and we we know that it's in Studio X and we have a picture of them in Studio X and we can look and see that these cabinets are mic'd up and it's these amplifiers. Then I will say it's these amplifiers. But if we don't know that, then all we can know is that they had uh, they had a certain. Uh, range of amplifiers that were available to them. In my discussions with with Ken Scott about this topic, uh, indicated that they would 
often start in one direction. Let's say they've started, they've mic'd up the AC30s and they're going after Taxman. And they decide, yeah, you know, it's not quite happening. I wonder what this sound like on the UL or the, you know, again, the, I think it's the 71 or the 7130 box. What would that sound like? And they plug in and, oh, that's cool. Quickly, they move a microphone and they do the work. Um, so we don't know those things. We can't, you know, we can't possibly know all of that. So I never pretend to know what you can't know. I get you as close as I can get you to what we do know for sure. And beyond that, I give you the range of possibility that, that we know, we also know for sure was in play. Beyond that, you know, beyond that, it's, it's, it's people who will tell you, for instance, <clears throat> I can tell the difference between, you know, a single wound coil and a humbucker any day of the week. And I'm like, well, maybe you can. <laughs> you know, I know some engineer that uh, sometimes you can't. So there well, you go. <laughs> I, I know more than I did uh, three minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, because that, that guitar tone is just, again, going from talking about all these, like, you know, fancy pieces of equipment, and I, all I can say is just, oh, man, that tone is just so bitchin'. Well, that's what it comes down to, and, and I think it's always what it comes down to when you're making music is, is you know, is what sounds cool. What do you think sounds cool? And the and, Beatles were the masters of using the studio to sound cool. Absolutely, they they gained a lot of freedom through their success to try different things in the studios. They had freedom that most artists didn't have at the time, and. Uh, relatively few artists are allowed in their career and it was it was because they sold a lot of records and you know no one was going to say that you can't have that magic in a bottle you know whatever that was they were going to the powers that be at emi were going to let that happen well i'm going to take a bit of a, a side turn from that and go right back to the beginning and ask jerry hammond how did you first discover the beatles Oh my gosh! Uh, there That's, were you know the question serious when my voice gets low. Oh, is that right? Okay, yeah. well I'll, I'll follow you down and tell you in, very, <laughs> in another very serious voice. It it goes back to my 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 earliest days. I'm you know child of the '60s, and uh, uh, so I was brought up on I was brought up on the Beatles. They were into their career when I was when I was a child, and. Uh, there are pictures of me with my brothers standing on the mantel place of uh, mantel of our fireplace at my grandmother's house with tennis rackets, pretending we're the Beatles. Uh, in in the U.S. where I grew up, uh, the Beatles' second album was on constant rotation well, in my ask, house. What was the first uh, Beatle record you remember getting? Yeah, Beatle. Yeah, Beatles. Beatles' second album was the was the first one that. Uh, that really drilled itself into my head. I think the first one that I owned that was mine was Pepper. Uh, but now, you know, all, important the, all question, that music. was that mm -hmm. mono or stereo? Oh, it was, it was stereo. It was stereo. There was no, you know, there was no, uh, uh, there was no uh, knowledge of the difference, the fundamental difference uh, for for the average consumer back in the 60s. I mean, if, if you were enlightened, you might know these things, but uh, 
for the for the vast majority of consumers what capitol records put out in the u.s those were the beatle albums that that weren't those the beatle albums yeah uh you know that's that's what we knew them as uh yeah rubber soul starts with i've just seen a face is there any yeah, other rubber way soul, rubber soul in the u.s is a country album right rubber soul in 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 the uk the, the beatles actual version of rubber soul is something completely different and i grew up with those experiences i grew up with the experience of of uh rubber soul's a folk rock album you know for lack of a better term see uh, i i've got a bit of a a unique perspective not even just as like a kid who's grown up with the you know canon british catalog but it's like my first beatles cds i owned was that 2004 the capital albums box set okay. so my first exposure to the those uh, early songs were through those like i don't know duophonic dave dexter jr mixes yeah the dexterized uh, yeah. lots of reverb and yeah um, but again you know they he was doing what he was doing what he knew through his experience at capital in the u.s sold records in the u.s that's what he was doing now you know later on when we get exposed to what was going on with the uk releases and in my in my life it was when i was an early teen i was able to get start my getting my hands on imports from the uk and, and from europe yeah imports it would you know imagine that of the of the actual you know the powerful uh, records and like wow the track listings are different that's unusual and oh these sound they're so much clearer and 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 all of a sudden I was like, oh. And then, you know, you read, you read, you start reading about them, get, you know, deeper, more deeply interested in reading about the Beatles history, and you, and you realize, oh, Capital is repackaging everything. Capital is doing, you know, X, Y, and Z to sell more records in the US. Ah, okay, I get it. And, you know, now, don't forget, the Beatles were aware of this. You know, there's a there's an interview with Harrison where he's talking where they, I think he's yeah. talking about Beatles about uh, Beatles sixty oh, five. Is that the one where it was at like the press conference for help at the Capitol Records Tower? And they were... I, could, I couldn't tell you specifically, uh-huh. you know, any of that kind of stuff. But I just I do recall I do recall he was talking about the fact that he knew that they the Capitol was reconfiguring the music. And it would come out in a different way. That was going to be on, you know, something like Beatles '65, and you know, he knew that they were, you know, taking help and making yesterday and today. You know, he knew that they were carving things up to get more releases out of it. I think in the U.S. they only averaged like ten songs an album compared to twelve to fourteen songs an album on, in the, with the U.K. releases, and they were the Beatles were aware of that, and they didn't care because they were selling records. Yeah. It's you can have all the uh, artistic integrity you want, but when you're selling, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of records, then yeah. you know you'll just take the check. Well, yeah. After a point, I mean, you've made you've made the music. You've made the music. There are the versions that they loved and wanted the public to hear. They made those. Those were you know, always going to be there. It's sort of the same thing, you know, now with uh, with what Giles Martin's doing with the. Um, with the remixes, those are kind of you know those are cool for completists, and they 
allow you to get a different view of the Beatles' music. Uh, but, you know, it's not the original stuff. Uh, as, again, I think it, I think it was Ken Scott, as Ken Scott was saying, or one, someone was saying, if you want to hear the original ones, they're there. Yeah. You know, so, so it's not, it's not anything to get too, you know, well, too fussed up about. On that kind of note, I want to ask, what are your thoughts on the uh, new Glenn John? On not Glenn John's Giles Martin mixes. <laughs> Let it be is on the brain. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a bit on my brain too. Um, I'm. I appreciate the Martin mixes, the Giles Martin mixes, for what they are. They are. They. They are certainly bringing a new level of fidelity uh, where we can hear more fully what was going on in the recordings that were made because he's able you know, to, to reverse engineer the sessions and get access to the tapes and, and the, the tracks in a way that the Beatles never had the opportunity to. That's all cool. And as a completist, which I am, I've got in you know, my collection is well over 5,000 different you know, Beatles tracks. And, you know, versions of the songs, takes of the songs, mixes of the songs. Uh, so, I mean, I love, I love all that. I love being able to hear, uh, to hear everything, everything that's there. I appreciate it that way, but I never confuse what Giles Martin has done with, or I've never confused it in the way of thinking about it as mixes that the Beatles would have done if they could have done them. I don't, I don't think you can. You can, you can put a contemporary filter on what the Beatles did in the '60s. All art, all art, music included, is is a product of its time and its limitations. The Beatles' music sounds the way it does because of the of the era that it was made in, and the technical limitations that they had in creating it. You can't separate the two. So. Martin gives us thoroughly modern mixes. And, and if the Beatles were working today, as you see McCartney still working today and Ringo still working today, uh, their approach to the music, given modern technology, the same music would be very different and we would have a very different result. We don't know what that result is, but it's not what, what Martin has done. Oh, uh, I'll give my two cents on how I've felt about the, the remixes over the past few years. Uh, with the last two, the Let or the Abbey Road and the uh, White Album, I didn't really like. I did a lot of like A B comparisons. I, it's some stuff on the new box I prefer, but it's not that different. It's not that different. Well, as you get out later, as you get out later in their in their catalog and starting, you know, the the, the White Album about half the album was done on eight track. <laughs> So, so when you get out into the eight-track recordings, now what's on the tape, the tapes that Martin has access to, is this pretty much the same thing that the Beatles had access to. So there's going to be a very close analog when you get to when you get to uh, uh, Abbey Road. You're almost virtually what he has to work with is the only thing to work with. It's not like when he was doing Pepper where uh, a lot of the pepper tracks are made up of audio that's coming from three different reels of tape. By the time they do the tape reductions to get, you know, to keep 
to work within that four track format, they had to do multiple what are called tape production remixes, meaning I filled they, up the they tape. They bounced uh, down. Yeah, they bounced down for yeah for a more colloquial term for that. Um, uh, because it because he had access to earlier generations pre-bounce down, he could give us a different view into the songs. But what's available for Abbey Road, there's only a couple of instances where there were a tape production remix in the Abbey Road, where they went from tape to tape. Typically, it was, a, it was a, an internal bounce down, meaning of my eight tracks that I'm working with, let's say I fill up six, I got two open tracks, I would take three or four or even five tracks, and I could move them to one. Well, the reason I do that is now I'm going to record over everything else. So it's gone. So what, what Martin is left with is pretty much what the Beatles were left with when they were working with them, what Martin and Emmerich were left with when they were working with them. So it's not surprising that as you get later in their catalog, these remixes at best sound very close to the originals. However, I will say this again. I've said it before. My preferred... Uh, listening experience for Sgt. Pepper in stereo is the 2017 Giles Martin remix because I, I have never been a big fan of the original stereo mix. Frankly, for years, I could barely listen to the 60s British stereo mixes in headphones because it would just be like all the voices in one ear and then at like a tambourine and then everything else. And then, yeah, yeah. And it, Rubber, it, Soul, Rubber Soul was mixed that way for stereo. Rubber Soul is one of those albums where, you know, it's built for karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can, Just unplug you, one of the speakers. Unplug one of the speakers and start singing along. Absolutely. But it's, <laughs> I, I am a big fan of what he managed to do because it, it sounds full. It's, they, so, they kept using like this, like buzz, buzz phrase, like trying to make a stereo version of the mono mix. Yeah. So, you know, think about that for, you know, think about that for a second. What do you, you know, what are they doing with that? When, when, when they're saying that, what are they, what are they saying? And I believe they're, I believe they're saying that when the, when the Beatles got to the stereo mix uh, with Pepper uh, that we're talking about here, uh, the, the stereo mix has always got the short end of the stick. Yeah. Up till up to the White Album, the White Album was kind of mixed in stereo and mono, pretty much simultaneously. So there wasn't a lot lost in translation. But with um, there was some, but not a lot. Yeah. Uh, with Pepper, there are really glaring differences. Uh, the use of uh, of ADT to create a flanging effect on uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, like these phasing vocals that you don't hear. It's straight ADT on the stereo one. It's not the phasing and flanging are not going on in, in that track at all. Mm-hmm. So that that they were trying to recreate that, you know, that's I mean, that's wonderful. The problem that, that I, the problem I have with it, I don't know if it's a problem, but the biggest difference that I notice in it is Martin has... Martin has a very modern approach that you can't get away from. You can't get away from. And what that is, is, is being able to hear everything. So with modern recording engineering and mix engineering, one of the, one of the things that a lot of engineers grow up learning now is that, Oh, you know, you need to be able to hear everything. 
You need to be able to hear the guitar and hear the bass and hear the drums and hear, and hear them all the time. What that ends up giving you is a very leveled experience. Yes, you can hear everything. I can hear all the articulations of the instruments. That's great at one level. But the Beatles in that era and the yeah. engineers in that era didn't mix like that. They picked, they, they picked things to come into your attention and that, they came glaringly into your attention. That's, that's the one th aspect of the... Uh of the 2017 mix that I am not a fan of. Like, if you listen to, like, The End of a Day in the Life on the original mix, it's just a sonic brick wall. You don't know what's going on. There's just sounds and sounds and sounds. But now you're able to pick out, oh, there's a cello. Oh, there's a violin. Instead of just yeah, being there was bombarded. There was well, there was nothing polite about that climax. There was nothing, no. never, and it was not supposed to be polite. It was supposed to, it was supposed to explode. And so when you, when you give up explosion for articulation, then you get what Martin did. I can hear everything, but it doesn't move me. Right? Yeah. The, the, the original mix moves you. It, it overwhelms you. And Martin's mix is, oh, wow, that orchestra did a nice, they did a nice, you know, whatever you, you know, I'm not, I'm not classically trained. I couldn't tell yeah. you what they were doing in that, what that technically that roll up is called. But, um, you know, oh, that sounds very nice. Look, you can hear, you know, you can hear that one of the tracks are going down and not up. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I like that. You know, that wasn't the intent. The intent was, was, chaos and explosion and and climax and yeah. you don't get it you don't get it but two uh tracks from that uh, we'll move on from this in a minute but um two tracks that i kind of feel benefited from being able to hear much more uh lucy in the sky with diamonds is i think the best the song has ever sounded that's yeah. i i will i will not I will not argue taste with anybody. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I think, again, what or Martin... My, my favorite stereo mix of the song. Yeah, you know, for a lot of people, uh, a lot of fans who have not been exposed to it, uh, exposed to the Beatles, Martin's uh, work has acted as a gateway. And that's, there. there's nothing wrong with it. It's a, it's a, it's a very positive thing. Um, I think like I think like most uh, fans, when you when you start to get excited about music and you 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 learn a little bit of something and it 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 triggers your imagination, it triggers your curiosity, and and you start digging in. So it's it's absolutely of no harm. That Martin might be people's first Giles Martin's work might be people's first exposure to the Beatles, uh, and it can certainly lead them into the original work and an understanding of the original work. And, and it's all good. It's all good. Luckily, uh, my favorite version of Pepper is still the original mono. It's yeah. Now you know, and and you know, full disclosure. You know, I didn't hear the mono, the original mono stuff until. Yeah, you know, I was probably in my twenties. You know, it just wasn't on the radar. It wasn't on the radar. You know, you got stereo, and 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 when I was actually when I was a 
a teenager, they were they were trying to popularize quadraphonic yeah. sound. You know, when you got that going on, you're like, I, I still occasionally see. Uh, <laughs> I keep seeing like quad copies of like Dark Side of the Moon or like uh, some Genesis quadraphenia. Quadraphenia. There you quad. go. But then you. I, I came so close to buying those, and then I re- realized, well, shit, I don't have a quad setup. Yeah, you need a quad setup. Yeah, I don't I don't think my cartridge can handle quad. Well, no, there it's a it's a tape format, as I recall. It's a it's a uh, open reel tape format. Is quad? Well, there's quadraphonic records. Uh, well, that's news to me. <laughs> It maybe it's news to me. I just don't recall anymore. It was such a small. It's yeah. sort of like it's sort of like people going, "Did you see that on Laserdisc?" It's like yeah. Laserdisc. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, I knew it existed, but no, I didn't know. I didn't know that they did that. There were quadraphonic records and quadra. Is there quadraphonic records? I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm following you there. There are. But there were actually a few Beatles-related ones. Quadraphonic. Yeah. There was a John. Uh, Vinyl. It, yeah. Imagine was released. How was that as, engineered? I have no idea. That's th- odd. There was a quad Imagine that came out in seventy one, and I think there were some quads for like Goodnight can't Vienna. You, can't you hear like the keystrokes of people like now googling quad vinyl? Yeah. To try to <laughs> to see which one of us is right and which one of us is is uh, getting too old. Probably me. <laughs> Again, I don't own them because they're really expensive. Yeah, what's the point? Yeah. I, I, even, <laughs> I even read that like someone had the tape box for like the master tapes of Pepper, and there was written in there, uh, like September nineteen seventy two quad mix. That Interesting. In the seventies, Pepper was apparently mixed for quad, but just never released. Interesting. Yeah, I said, so, so, you know, for people that are curious about that kind of thing uh, and, and how it relates to the work that I've done, I kept my scope of work because it was so huge to start with. I kept it very clear and very clean. I only am, I've only been interested in, in documenting the Beatles recording work in the course of their career, in the course of their recording career as the Beatles. So I didn't get to into, you know, any of the um, greatest hits packages and how those might have come together, alternative mixes for those, or any of that kind of thing. My work starts with 61 when they were doing the work in Germany. It ends with Abbey Road, and, or Let It Be, sorry, I, Me, Mine, the very last thing that they that they worked on. Um, that's it. That's, that's the scope of it. So was there, you know, a pepper quadraphonic vinyl <laughs> mix made? No, I, you know, I, I didn't follow the, the, the rabbit hole that far down. I needed to come up after a decade. Well, I had to come out of it. The question here isn't like, was there a quadraphonic mix made? It's who gives a shit? <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's, you know, some people at the time probably did, and probably. Well, I don't think that anyone that, cares if, now. If, if, if it a, happened, there's a 5.1 yeah. mix that you can buy. For sure. Yeah. yeah the Blu-ray, the Blu-ray versions. Um, and, and yeah, now, you know, there's there's another thing again. 
you know, extending the Beatles catalog in way in different ways that people you know can experience it in different ways. That's all you know. That's all cool. There's, um, uh, yeah, it's it's all good. But you know, someone who's interested in history that has its that has its place in the timeline of history. But I'm I'm my interest is really on how they made the music they made as a you know, musician and a producer and an engineer. It's, it's how did they make that music? That's what fascinates me. It isn't what, you know, it isn't what happened afterwards to address different marketing opportunities that might come. <laughs> you know, that's, that has, that is virtually no interest to me. Well, I want to go back to kind of the, your origin story here. Um, what do the Beatles mean to you? Oh, everything. I mean, the Beatles are, the Beatles are uh, one of the primary reasons I got into music in the first place. So, yeah, they're 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 fundamental to my understanding of music. I mean, they're the they're the yardstick that good music is judged by, as far as I'm concerned. Good pop music well, is how judged did, by. How did they influence your career? Oh. I I knew very early on that the Beatles were doing. I mean, I'm talking like seven or eight years old. That this music was made in a studio. That this music was made on a multi-track. And I knew this very early on. And and from you know when I and so you know I was when I really became aware of the Beatles, they weren't playing live anymore. They were studio band, right? They were doing everything in the studio. So I knew that here were these great, cool musicians, and they were making music in the studio, and they were making multi-track recordings. And and I have, uh, or my, my mom somewhere in a box, has drawings that I made mapping out, much like her in my books now, multi-track sessions for my own music where I would dream of making these songs and they'd have a guitar on on track one and drums on track two and vocals on, you know, and and I I knew probably by 10 years old about things like bounce down mixes. I had learned about those kinds of things. So I was like, oh, I filled up the tape here. I'm doing, drawing my diagrams. I filled up the tape on my imaginary song. And so now I've got to send all of that to this so I can open up to do, I. All of this was in my head, and it was because of my fascination with how the Beatles made their music, and and wanting to make music, and and realizing that 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 was in reach for me, and that was all because of the Beatles. Um, so, like in your you know daily work as a producer, how how often do uh, do you like feel a Beatles influence? when you're making like mixing choices oh, it's ingrained i mean it, it's absolutely ingrained with me it's part of it's it's part of my core philosophy when i'm when i'm working is is to work with intent work with the idea of commitment uh, make choices and stick with them and realize that the choices that you're making now are going to influence the the shape of the song as it moves forward uh, uh, when I when I really started getting ex- experience and exposure in professional studios, it was it was in the start of the late seventies, and uh, that was an era where you started to hear people saying 
things like, oh, we'll just fix it in the mix, man. Don't worry about yeah. it. You'd, you'd hear that kind of you'd hear that kind of, of of talk going on, and that was never what you were able to do, uh, typically able to do, or necessarily the right thing to do when you're working when you're working with tape, and especially when you're working with a limited number of of uh, tracks on your audio tape. The what you're forced to do with a limited number of tracks is you have to make choices that are that are committed to. So when the Beatles did these reduction remixes, they're working on, on you know, let's let's move them past the twin track days into the four track days, starting with a hard day's night. When you run out, when you're gonna run out of tape, or you've run out of tape, I've filled up all four tracks. I've got you know, I've got my backing track with my backing band. I've got a couple of things of harmonies, but ah, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we had a horn section? And now I've got to open up a new a track to do that. In order to move that the, those four performances to a new tape, you have to make a mix. You have to mix it in order for those four tracks to take up only three tracks or only two tracks. And right at that moment, you're committing to decisions like, how am I going to EQ this? How am I going to compress it? Uh, what instruments are going together on track one or track two. You're making all of these choices at, that will shape the way the song sounds from there on out. And that's influenced me. I, I, I think of the creation process as, uh, as additive. All the, it's always additive when you're making music in my, in, in my way of thinking. Uh, so I never look at like, oh, I'll just put down a piano part and then I'll and you know we have the luxury nowadays you as you know working with virtual instruments and and midi that we can track like a piano part on one of a hundred pianos and be done with the core composition of the part and then we could endlessly go back and go oh i'd like to try that on an upright piano that has yeah. soft belts and i'd like to try that on a steinway nine foot concert grand at uh, you know at the Royal Albert Hall, I'd like to hear that in uh, you know Grandma's you know Grandma's spinet piano in the basement, and you can make those choices going forward if you choose to. I don't work that way. I figure out what I want to hear, I track it, and I commit to it, and then move forward. And I work with artists that I work with artists that way. I I because now I can forget about the past. The past is done. It's only the future. It's only what's ahead of me now. And uh, you could spend endless amount of hours going back and back and circling and circling around decisions. So what I've learned from the Beatles and what I take into, into recording every single day and producing and mixing every single day is make a choice, move forward, get the work done. Now I, I'd like to do a little experiment. So I have a friend. Uh, his name's Dylan. He um, he does not share all of my same opinions on the Beatles. Uh, he doesn't understand. Uh, I, I keep trying to tell him, like, you do not realize how much they innovated. Like, not even just that, in the studio. Like, their studio innovations. I'm going to pass it to you. Jerry, in your opinion, what were the top five biggest innovations that the Beatles did in the studio? 
Well, I don't know if I could name. I don't know if I would be naming five of them. Okay, you know, certain, three. Certainly the three. Well, let's just see what comes out of my head. Okay. Um, <laughs> certainly the use of of uh, artificial double tracking. Well, that was uh, that was created in Abbey Road. Yeah, it was created in Abbey Road by Ken Townsend. Um, so artificial double tracking. I almost said Ken Scott, is, but I I got confused with the Kens. So that's that's a big one. Um, the use the the extensive use of berry speed uh on on tracks to to do all sorts of things in, in creating mood uh, uh with music uh the the use of all of of alternative um alternative sound for lack of a better term uh that would be exampled by the using the leslie organ cabinets as guitar as guitar oh. amplifiers there's you're gonna yeah, there's oh one. man that is i think my favorite sound on the planet uh just a guitar through a leslie yeah well, it can be nice and it can be horrible but yeah. uh yeah but it's there um uh the use of the experimental use of tape loops <laughs> in pop in pop music you know here's the uh, something to remember about the beatles was they had the eyes of the world upon them Right, you know, once once Beatlemania hit, once they captured the popular imagination, they had the eyes of the world on them. So here's a band with the eyes of the world on them that is willing to that are willing to do things like Revolution Number Nine. Uh, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows. Tomorrow Never Knows is 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 where you know this all started, where the extensive exactly. use of all started. Uh, but you know, step out a bit and, you know, here is a band that's willing to do that. It's willing to experiment. Um, and a band that, that's, that's a, willing to fight EMI to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, I, this, it's not my bailiwick to, you know, to, to, to or, or, or in my memory, like how big of a fight was that? Lennon wanted that as a single, I think. <laughs> no, I, I mean, um, in general, there was a there was a, a constant struggle. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Well, there's always. I mean, you know, all a record company wants to do is sell records. Like, and the easiest record to sell is the one that you've already sold, right? Like, I know, you know. Hey, give us some more yeah, yeah, yeah stuff, you guys. That sold a lot. <laughs> I, I remember hearing a story of they were mixing or they were like recording. Um, I think it was Taxman, and uh, Ringo asked the uh, studio technician to move the mic closer to his drum. And he got fined. Uh, well, um, they, you know, EMI had EMI had very very uh, rigorous standards for recording, which is why a lot of the well, the majority of the of the catalog coming out of EMI sounds magnificent. Mm -hmm. um, so they had rules like you couldn't use. Uh, you couldn't use ribbon mics, and in, in the Beatles' case, the, a popular ribbon mic in their era, the early era, was the STC 4038 uh, ribbon mic, and that early on was used for kick drum. Uh, but it's a ribbon. Ribbons are very, very fragile microphones. Well, you know, there came a point where it was like, no, 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 no. We're blowing up way too. They can't take sound pressure levels, and kick drums put out a lot of sound pressure. Uh, because they have a very fine foil that, that vibrates is what is the way the technology works. So EMI comes down and says, hey, no more rhythm mics or ribbon mics on kick drums. Uh, you know, we're blowing up way too many of them. You know, we 
we can't do that. We need them for other purposes in the studio. Well, that's fine, but the Beatles could still use ribbon mics. You know, the Beatles were like, you know, no, I like the way the ribbon mic that sounds on it, so we're going to use it. And that that's that's sort of an example. Now, where they did run into some, I mean, they were in, yeah, they were always up against the administration in that way of EMI that. You know, Paul wanted more bass signal than EMI was giving him, and so he would. They would kind of like nudge the mastering engineer. Hey, can you, you know, can you give me two more dB on the bass? Well, and, I don't know if this story is true. I think I've already said that. Um, the when they were recording the guitar parts to Revolution, uh, DI into the the mixing console, they had mm-hmm. an Abbey Road uh, like intern like shove a chair against the door so no one else could get in until the Beatles had <laughs> laid it down. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's, 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 it'd be a cool story, but it's true. Maybe it's true. Yeah. Um, what I do know about that was when they finished that and they were and they were bringing it into, you know, the, the powers that be as a uh, as a, a single to be released and they're Sir listening Joseph to it. Joseph Lockwood. Yeah, and, and, they're, and they're bringing it into, you know, to listen to that the reaction, my understanding of the reaction was, you can't release that. It's all distorted. And it is. Everything on that track, almost Bingo. everything on that track is dis- is distorted. The, from the vocal, guitars, bass, and drums, they're all just, they all have an edge of, of saturation or heavy distortion. The only and thing the that thought doesn't was, sound, you can't put that out. The only thing that doesn't sound really distorted is the keyboards. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, but but you know, certainly what they were going for yeah. was this hyper compressed, super saturated uh, sound. So, there you go. And you might hear in the background. Sorry, listeners. Oh, the alarm's gone off. Someone's car was not stolen, apparently. <laughs> you heard it here first. This is a fans on the run exclusive. Yeah, yeah, the crime crime spree in downtown Toronto. <laughs> I gotta love the GTA. Oh yeah. So now I want to get kind of opinionated because this is when the show gets really fun, and this is where all the fun conversations happen. What is I'm your you. what? I'm following you. Okay, okay, you're following what I'm putting down. Yeah, we'll we'll see how far. Yeah. <laughs> Don't follow me too far. You might walk off the ledge. Okay. What is your favorite Beatles song? Oh, yeah. Uh, different songs in different days. I can tell you I go back, you know, in my heart, I always go back to With the Beatles, to the With the Beatles album. <laughs> um, there's something about that that just, that just feels right. There's, um, as far as performances that, like, always come to mind, uh, Babies in Black from uh, Beatles for Sale. Uh, I'll never forget uh, hearing hearing that on a really good stereo system for the first time, and hearing you know the the oh how long will it take harmony kick in and just getting goosebumps. Um, so you know there's that. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, Magical Mystery Tour was being played nonstop by my brother and I, the, the U.S. version of Magical Mystery Tour. Um, so, the album. So, uh, you know, there's that going on. It's it's definitely different tracks at different times. Uh, but 
but I do come back to the with the Beatles, I think for a couple of reasons. It's not as raw as Please Please Me, but it still has the immediacy of, of the band as a live act. Um, uh, and, I, and I've always loved that about the Beatles. Uh, when the Star Club recordings came out in the mid-70s, uh, and I and the the album version of that opens so not probably a lot of people nowadays have experienced that more through bootlegs than they have than they have through the vinyl um, or, and the the original release that came out on on who knows what record label I forget now it was like but the Be- Linga song or there you go that's great so, great memory so, yeah yeah oh, yeah something yeah like I think that. that's it and I think that's I think that's right. Um, but it opens up with I want to sit right down and cry over you. I'm going to sit right down and cry over you. And just blew my doors off. You know, and this is coming out. What's really cool about it, as far as like when that came out, I believe it was 1977. Yeah. And so this is happening when punk is starting to, to really come into the consciousness of the, of the U.S. market. And now here's the Beatles as a punk band. Here's the Beatles that are just raw and on fire, and they're doing these, they're just, you know, these are rapid fire, you know, on speed sets that these guys are, were doing in, in, in Germany. And to hear the Beatles that amped up and loose and raw, but still hear the Beatles, uh, it was just, it was just cool and eye-opening. So that's another one that I, I really I love kind of start a experience that's that's one of them i i I really enjoy even though they're really lo-fi i really enjoy listening to the star club stuff you know you know this is a thing that that i think it's i mean i'm an audiophile i love great i love great sounding music i love you know i love as close to what the the artist recorded as i can possibly get you know whatever that is i want to get i want to get that close like I try to, I'm always when I'm when I'm listening to music, it's always very neutral. It's always you know I, I think of it. Yeah, you know, I, I hate a I hate an experience that is that is colored too much by a, by a reproduction system, a stereo system. I don't like you know the I don't like hyper bass. Like I would I would be a very uh, I'd be a very unpopular young man today because I would not have the car with the booming. <laughs> bass going on you know with it with an 18 inch woofer in the trunk to give me that you know that low-end rumble no i don't want to hear that i want to hear what the engineer did i want to hear i want to hear the way that they put that music together in the studio as close as i can so you know that's that's my preference but however you hear the music given the era i'm open to it like i've got a huge collection of what of a, a digitized collection that I that I got from um, uh, a U.S. university of wax cylinder recordings, oh. and and they are you know they're. <laughs> I love that crap. I love it. I absolutely love it. It takes, it transports me. I love that. I love '40s music. I, you know, and 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 this is stuff because of the technology of the era. It has, you know, it's got in, by today's standard very limited bandwidth. 
it it, uh, it neither has the high frequency reach that was that's possible nowadays or the low frequency reach that doesn't matter it, it what matters is that it connects with you emotionally and and so uh, that's always what I'm after with the music so the Beatles of different eras you know some people describe the Beatles the Beatlemania Beatles as like black and white Beatles and the Beatles after the pepper era as color Beatles and I just don't think of it that way. I just think of it like, you know, I take what I, I, I take what I'm given. I understand because I do the work that there are limitations that come with it. Yeah. And I recognize that the work that I'm doing now, I'm you know, like I, I work completely in the box on computers and and I have a world at my fingertips. But I realize the world at my fingertips right now in about ten years is gonna seem primitive. And the sounds that I'm able to generate now are gonna seem primitive. But they're they're of their time. The work that I'm doing is of its time, and and uh, that's the way that I the filter that I used to view the Beatles' work. It was it was of its time, and for that, it's phenomenal. Well, the flip side to the question of what your favorite Beatles song is, what's your least favorite Beatles song? Uh, probably like the most indulgent ones, probably, and these might be fan favorites. Things like, oh, what's the new, what's the new Mary Jane, okay. or you know, twelve bar original, you know, yeah. um, just terrible. Um, you just, they're just terrible. They're fun, you know. Twelve bar original isn't even fun, so maybe that's it. <laughs> twelve bar original. Let's put it at that. The Beatles were not great at jamming, just not, not, not a great jam band. No. Um, but uh, yeah, it's the it's it's those sorts of things that you know that are in their canon that you know they could get away with because they were the Beatles. But there's not a whole lot of thought put into them. There's um, those are the ones that just they, you know they don't resonate with me. That's all I'm that's all I'm ever looking for. I'm just looking for something that moves me. And those you know those don't. I'll get a kick out of like Mary Jane get a kick out of um, what's the other one from that from that period it's just it's escaping me but you know my um, name look up the number yeah you know my name it's you know it's yeah it's it, terrible it's terrible well i don't think it's, it's terrible it's it's just fun well it's it's okay it, it's, it's okay it, but it's, it's okay on the fun scale well it, but i think it's, it's it's just terrible they made it it's about the quality of their like christmas records except for christmas time is here again which is a great Beatles track. It is as as repetitive as it is. It's a it's it's a it's absolutely a fundamental Beatles track. Yeah, just you know, and, Which and I, I think that, it's a travesty that it's not available anywhere, except for that uh, Christmas singles box that came out a couple years ago, or if you want to go back in time to nineteen ninety five or 1996, and get your little CD single of uh, Free as a Bird. Well, there you go. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's out there. But that, I, I want to say that that's like acoustic guitar, piano, drums, and vocals. And that's all it is. Mm -hmm. And yet, that's the Beatles. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like the Beatles, right? Yeah. It's, it's unmistakable. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that. So there's a very slight effort, right? You know, they probably came up with it on the cuff. 
as they did, you know, most of those, you know, most of those uh, Christmas records. That one was actually, I take it back. I think the song might have been, it was probably more off the cuff, but you know, that the skit that they did, the silly little skit they did, they had a plan for that, that pantomime, everywhere is Christmas or something that it, that it's part of. Um, uh, it's part of my yeah, every year Christmas tradition. I put on, oh, I put on all the singles. That's funny. The Christmas ones. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're yeah they're they're a they're a riot. I I had I had not been so excited about an official Beatles release uh, in a <laughs> long long time, and then they announced the Christmas stuff, and I about shit my pants yes, when I saw that. Yes. Like, finally, it's like Apple knows who their market is. They know it's weirdos like us who will buy, you know, the Beatles talking like eh. Thank you for buying a fun club record. Mm. Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's, there's certainly, you know, an aspect of the community that is, you know, again, completist. They yeah. want to have, they want to have, or they want, they want to hear everything they can hear. Oh, I sure as hell am one of them. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. I mean, uh, it's certainly, it's certainly informative to, you know, when you, when you're able to go deep into their catalog and deep into their, like I've been able to do into their sessions and understand how the work came together. And uh, there's, there's musical innovation and moments that are happening all throughout it that, uh, you know, they're, they're entertaining and they're, and they're enlightening as far as, you know, from a musical standpoint. one of the big things I always talk about when 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 I'm doing these kind of discussions is how practiced the band was, mm-hmm. and I think it's 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 lost on a lot of a, a lot of fans just how hard the Beatles worked at making music. The only real exposure we we have to a big exposure we have to it is through Let It Be, mm-hmm. which you're seeing is on your mind a lot these days because we're all waiting for the, yeah. the, the the recut of the movie or, or Peter Jackson's version of the movie the, and the whatever they're going to do. Well, hopefully it's not Disney fied, but well. Um, we'll see. Well, I guess we'll have to see. But um, the the uh, the tapes that came out <clears throat> of that of, of that. Uh, the Twickenham rehearsal sessions. Uh, there are there are bootlegs of that. Uh, about it's a, it ends up being about an eighty-eight-zero CD collection. When I, when I was talking with Bruce Spicer uh, a while back, he told me he had the full because uh, he had done this uh, get back book, and so he yeah, got... he listened to the whole thing. Oh yeah, I've got I've got it, and I, and the same you know same same story as Bruce. Um, uh, but what you learn from that is how hard the band worked on a daily basis to get ready to make a record, <clears throat> and that's exceptional. You know, they didn't—they weren't savants that just went in and like Beatles. You know, you know, John, you know, give me Strawberry Fields, boom, Strawberry Fields. No, it didn't work that way. No, you, you, it didn't even work that way with two of us. Give me two of us relatively simple tune you learn in the in the through the 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 naga reels of, of of those twickenham rehearsal sessions for what it be that in any one day they might do 40 takes of two of us 
over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, working out just small details as they were in the, tr were in the track of the arrangement, how they want to sing it, how they want to play it, maybe try some variations on, on the different sections. They were working, 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 working. And this is at the end of their career, toward the end of their career. It was no different at any point in their career. This is a band that worked really, really hard to do the work. Now, was it always, you know, day after day after day after day of rehearsals? No. But they didn't just plug in and come up with magic. They worked their butts off to, to bring that to life. And, uh, you know, we're the beneficiaries of that, of that really hard work. I've got one last question. Well, not one sure. last. I've got two. What is, in your opinion, the best sounding Beatles album? Not your favorite, not your, like, one you enjoy the most. One oh, e e easily Abbey Road has the best fidelity of any of the Beatles albums. It's, it's, Abbey Road can, Abbey Road can stand up to anything recorded today for the most part uh it's it's that good it's that it's that well done uh so so hands down it's abbey road you know it's a it was it was conceived and recorded in stereo so it's very modern uh, i was never a mono version of it it was never intended that way so it was always recorded it was always recorded and intended to be heard in this in this full broad image that we that we commonly experience music in nowadays yeah it's easily the best sounding of the beatles records and not a non-beatles question what in your opinion is the best sounding album that you've ever heard that's a tough question the best sounding album that i've ever heard and again it has nothing to do Boy. with the quality of the music yeah. but <clears throat> yeah um you know, uh, that's just that's just super difficult. Super difficult for me. Uh, there's so many recordings of of phenomenal fidelity. Uh, you know, from classic from classic rock bands to you know to experimental artists to artists that you had never heard of. You know, today there's stuff that Brian Eno did that was just this just fantastic. Daniel Lanois, Canadian. Um, his gold top recording that he that he did is just a beautiful sounding recording. So when you talk about that, to me that that starts to speak of these you know layers of intricacy that can come into the recording you know come into the recording process um, or immediacy that comes into it. So uh, yeah, almost impossible for me to to answer like what's the best sounding thing I've ever heard. Uh, a lot of the big records of the mid '70s, where they were getting kind of getting everything right on the technical end, uh, Steely Dan records yeah, that were like going Asia. on then. A yeah, Asia, just hard to find fault in anything that was anything that was going on then. However, Asia, because it was recorded in the era that it was recorded, it's got a shelf. It's got a low end shelf and it's got a high end shelf that are very different from the expanded. Um, sonic ranges of things that are going on now um, where 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 you can record you can record information that we can't hear right you can record frequencies that, that we can't hear 
uh, human hearing goes from 20 hertz to 20,000 kilohertz on average. But you can track stuff down to uh, you can track stuff down to 15 hertz, five hertz below what we can hear. You can track stuff up to 40 hertz, 20 hertz above, 20 kilohertz above what we can hear. You know, you, you know, dog hearing territory. So you can track these things, and they certainly have an effect on our perception of fidelity when we're hearing modern recordings. And so even these great classic recordings that were that were being made, um, they you know they don't have that that range available to them. Um, yeah, every year you know every year there continues to be great music made. Um, Every year, there are engineers and producers that are pushing the envelope. Uh, it, you know, it's exciting. It's 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 fun to it's fun to learn new things. And the technology now that's available uh, for you and I to make great music, uh, it produce and produce release quality music, um, means that means that great sound you know great sounding tracks, great sounding albums, great sounding singles are you know they're in everyone's hands if you have the patience and the dedication to to make to to make that kind of music and i i just want to round out or round out uh our conversation with this why do you think the beatles still matter well the beatles still matter because they are uh, they created music that was that was both uh, accessible and meaningful, and uh, personally meaningful as well as culturally meaningful. So that and that sort of thing will that sort of thing will always matter. They they also set a bar for musicians that is that is still yet to be surpassed. And I'm not talking about just popular sales. I'm not talking about just the fact that they're they remain one of the top selling artists. Almost every year, they're in the running for the top-selling artist. Um, you know, they're just—that's just crazy to think about. Fifty yeah. years on, that they're able to chart, and that they're and that they are competitive in you know streaming marketplaces and, and all of these things. So it's not, but it's not only that. It's it's they they established in the mindset of, of especially musicians that are trying to create music. The idea that I can do this. I don't need a songwriter. I don't need, you know, I don't need a, a studio band like the Beach Boys had. You know, the, the Wrecking Crew. You know, we can do all this ourselves, guys. We can, you know, guys and girls. We can make music. Uh, that's why they still matter. They're still an example that these, you know, a, a fairly modest, modestly talented band out of a very small, you know, northern. England town can come in and rule the world of pop music. You know that gives everyone hope. It's a great, you know, it's a great, it's a great story. It's a great story, and it's a story, and it's a great, it's a story that that you and I can embrace wherever we are in the world. Uh, you know, I can embrace that. That the Beatles gave me permission. The Beatles gave me permission to be a rock star if I want to work hard enough. You know, I can try. To work hard enough, and they gave me permission to make my own music, and they gave me permission to have my my own communication with my fans. 
They did so many things on those levels. I think that's that's really why they still matter. Um, uh, and uh, the other the other aspect of it, why they why they matter, why they are such a great example, is in a very compressed creative period of time, just a few years. Yeah. They you know they put their head down and and banged out some of the some of the best music of all time. It was. 62 to 69 and they did that yeah yeah i mean part of it was what they were what they were called on to do under their contract uh that was just the nature of the, of the industry at the time that they had they, they had to uh keep up that level of productivity but but it's the productivity plus the quality that makes the difference with the beatles it wasn't just that they were coming out with a couple albums and a couple of singles a year for years and years and years up to Pepper. It was it was that of themselves, you know, through with you know, under George Martin's guidance, of themselves they demanded that that music be cool, that that music be good, that that, you know, they demanded that of themselves. They didn't let themselves get away with doing crap. And I think that's, you know, again, that's why they matter. That's that's for anyone who's involved in making music is a lesson you should take from it is is don't allow yourself to make crap take the time to to do whatever expression that you're bringing into your into the world as your art take the time to make it right take the time to do the best job you can do on it because i'll tell you the other lesson that 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 i've learned over my my career is you don't get to go back and the beatles didn't either you never get to go back. Yeah. So don't make music today thinking, oh, I'll do a better job on this recording, you know, next year. I'll do it again. Because I guarantee you, you will not do it again. Today is your moment with the art that you're making and the music you're making. So make it today the best thing that you can make today. And you'll thank yourself down the road that you took that time and, and put in that effort. And so now it brings me to my favorite part of the show. Where I got to turn it over to you. Where can we find your books? Uh, Amazon everywhere is uh, probably the easiest way to find my books. Uh, um, you can get them through it, my. It's obviously on Amazon to everyone except me. I <laughs> I now I I just feel like a fucking idiot. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Um, oh, yeah, now I have, I have some catching up to do because now I have to buy one, two, three, four, and five. Oh, yeah, well, number five, I'll put on my Christmas list. There you go. That's a great idea. Makes a great gift. Makes a great gift. As, as Spinal Tap said, yeah. makes a great gift, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Amazon in uh, in almost every major market, you know, globally, it's available. Uh, and uh, if you want to buy it through the website and learn a little bit more about the books before you buy them, uh, Beatles Recording Reference Manuals.com is the is the URL for that. Uh, I encourage people to get the books. If you're you know a, a, a music nerd, a tech nerd like me, a Beatles nerd like me, and you think you've found something in the books that maybe the books or you feel like you know something about the Beatles that that will make the books better or just want to share, there's contact information on the website. Please reach out. I don't take offense at people finding out that I'm not perfect. Um, I, the feedback I've got from readers and from fans has helped make these books better. And I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you track down chapter and verse 
if you want to get anywhere with me, mind you. So there's the there's the caveat and the warning is bring your you know, bring your A game. Uh, but cage you know, match, bring, cage bring, bring, match. Yeah, but bringing you no, know, but bringing your bringing good information to light that you know I can't I can't possibly have uh, have everything right all the time with these things. There's you know things come things come up or there are documents that have been lost that I don't have access to that someone else might anything like that that you might think would help make the books better uh, and more accurate. I'm open to there's contact information on the website again. It's Beatles recording reference manuals.com and I welcome it and uh, and I appreciate it. Well, I, I've had a very fun time today. Oh, me too. It's a blast. Yeah. Blast talking to you. It's it's thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. And to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Dance on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillips. This has been a Showtown production.